0: I think one of the greatest things you can do for the junior-level staff or mid-level staff is after an event or an incident, there's a desire to go to return to good, whatever that is, at a credential, at a device, at an entity level, whatever that is. But often we repeat the same issue over and over again. So we detect it, we respond, we clean up. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and on this special episode, originally recorded at this year's RSA Conference, I welcome back Dave D'Amato and Sandro Buccineri, to talk about an element of success and resilience that leaders don't always consider or prioritize. People. Why do people fail? And what impact does human resilience have on program success? Does failure always come in the form of a serious event? Or is it in an erosive, lingering vulnerability? How can leaders hire for and nurture a more resilient team? Good day, everyone. Uh, I'm Steve Moore, and this is the new CISO at RSA. We're talking about resiliency, but more specifically, why teams fail. So why do we have these issues? Why do teams and people, individuals fail? And I have two wonderful guests today, Mr. Dave D'Amato and Mr. Sandro Bucaneri. And I think I got that right. Last time you kind of teased me because I was not strong enough to attempt it, but uh, you teased me. And Did I get it right, Sandro? You've really helped me develop, Sandro. I appreciate that. For those that are familiar with the new CISO podcast, each of these individuals have been on the show before. As you note, some of you may be seeing this just as, as video, and later on, we will take it and turn it into podcast material as well. For those that may not have met these individuals before, if they could each introduce themselves, that might help with the show. I start with you, Mr. D'Amato. Please introduce yourself.
1: Thanks, Steve. Great to be back. Real quick, I am the current, uh, currently the CSO at Gemini, which is a cryptocurrency exchange and custodian. We have just over thirty billion dollars in assets under custody today, so that's pretty, pretty cool. Previously worked at PwC. I was an early member of the leadership team at Mandiant, and I was one of the first security. I was the first security hire and CSO at Tanium previously before this as well. And I guess uh, most importantly, I'm a very sleep-deprived father of, of two wonderful daughters uh, who are three and four.
2: Thank you so much, David. Sandro. Hi, Steve. Great. Thank, thanks for the invite. And yeah, I'm Sandra Buccianeri. I'm the group CSO, the APSA group in South Africa. I'm based in Cape Town. Apsa is a uh, financial institution, essentially a bank operating across the African continent with uh, satellite offices in New York, London, and Prague. Then before this, I was uh, the CSO at the National Bank of Abu Dhabi. And before that, I was in London. And before that, I was in the US. So as you can gather, I've I've lived on uh, five continents already, looking for a sixth home. So we'll see how that goes in the near future. But now I'm I'm glad to be here.
0: Thanks for being here again, both of you. So again, the topic is sort of painted by the idea of resiliency, which is a theme this year at RSA. But I enjoy getting into the human, the leadership, the, the, the people, reasons behind things. So specifically failure uh, and, and why it's misunderstood, what we can do to help avoid it. Uh, but also, as we face it, how are we a better leader? So I think just in general, I was going to start with a question that's defining failure, but I think it's best addressed in the form of kind of a wrapped question. To me, we often lack a definition of good within information security. So what's a good leader? What's a good team? So how do leaders keep teams resilient when we don't have a definition uh, of good? And I'd like to start with, with Dave first on this. So how do we think about resilience? How do we think about Avoiding failure when we often don't even know what good versus bad is. A thought there?
1: Yeah. So, you know, it comes down to setting some expectations. And the best way to do that is through a series of different frameworks. And so it'll depend on your business. I think that's the key. And it'll also depend on your role. There's so many things that CSOs are being asked to do today. So it could be trust and safety, it could be physical security, it could be IT. You could be heavy in application security, for example. And so coming together with a series of different frameworks that really lay out your capabilities and start to perform some of the analysis to say, where are we today? Where do we want to be next year or the year after? Is, is probably the easiest way to define what success looks like to your team and to leadership.
0: A point that we talked about earlier is even if we do everything well, uh, sort of the table stakes and the, the, min- the, the points you mentioned, we still fail if we don't take care of the team. We tend to focus a lot about or maybe not enough about the individuals, again, with this sort of idea of resiliency and, and failures there. You have things like, like high turnover and even uh, high turnover for leadership. Sandro, what's your take on that? Do you think that a lot of the issues, or at least the majority of the problems we have in security, tie back to people not feeling safe or not feeling like they have an appropriate leader? attached to their group and, and what's the gravity associated with that right how do, what's team to failure what's your connection there
2: yeah i think the key thing for me is that you know we treat our teams as people so often in tech security you know we we, we teach it we well we, we teach each other to understand what the mechanics are from a technical perspective from an automation from a robotic perspective but then sometimes we uh, as a leader you take that across to your team and you tre- teach them or expect them to act as a robot. They have feelings. You know, they have kids, you know, two young daughters or you know, three kids in my case. And and that's the important thing for me is that you understand that your, your people are exactly that. They are people, not robots. And uh, the, the sooner we understand that, that they make mistakes, failure happens. Failure is one of the most important things ever. If you don't fail, how do you learn? So I think that's the key thing for me is that understanding that your teams are individuals with with challenges, with, with problems, with struggling to pay the rent, uh, struggling to put a roof over the head, struggling to put food on the table. All those things, you now plays a, a massive part in how they show up. And if you can understand that as a leader, I think you'll go a long way in building that resilience for your team.
0: Yeah, but that's playing the opposing side here. And anyone who knows me knows that this is not my perspective, but that's all hard. That's difficult. That's more than I signed up for, Sandro.
2: Maybe. It may, that may be, but think of your own circumstances. Think how you're showing up, showing up. When you get out of bed this morning, I got out of bed this morning, think I have to go to work today. That's how I felt. That's, and I don't feel like that. That was hard. Now, if I felt that way, what do the other 500 people in my security organization feel like when they have to wake up and it's cold outside and they have to go to the office? So you, know, you can play devil's advocate all you want. It's... Um, Feelings are important when it comes to leadership because we keep forgetting about that and how we then
0: show up. I think also, if you remind the individual, the human, and understand them as that, over time, I think that I've personally seen, especially in crisis, which, which Dave has, has spent a lot of his time in uh, helping others with their crisis, crises, if you care about the individual and they know that you care, they don't second guess it when there is a crisis. Does that make sense? Like, if they know that you're there for them, and then all hell breaks loose, they're not going to think, oh, man, what's, what's Steve going to do, right? What's, what's, what's Dave going to do? What's Sondra going to do? I think that's an important element, that if, you're, if you care about the individual, uh, it's best in crisis. I, I know this is kind of a little bit of a, a twist on, the, on what we discussed, but David, any thoughts on that in terms of seeing people under pressure, seeing lots of different kinds of leaders, With the eye toward resiliency, in crisis,
1: which teams are most resilient? It's usually uh, pretty clear. So you have teams that sort of shut down, that want to pretend that there's not an issue, that don't embrace it, right? That are, you know, to Sandra's point before, they're scared to embrace that failure and talk about it. And then there are those that rally around it, right? There's the ones that have practiced, you know, some sort of blameless postmortem in the past, and they're excited to understand what happened and why it happened. And they're curious, and they're interested, and they're not concerned about any type of retaliation uh, for making a mistake. And those are the teams that typically swarm and fix an issue quickly and get to the other side without much of an impact as compared to the others who sort of ignore it until it becomes a much bigger issue.
0: What do you think the long-term effect is of retaliation? As you mentioned, maybe, maybe describe a little bit what you mean by retaliation, but what do you think the, if you're in a culture of retaliation, so if you see this, if you're watching and you hear it, And you think okay i I see this what's the long-term effect of uh, retaliation as it relates to after action reports or response and cleanup that
1: kind of thing yeah i think the the biggest outcome is bad bad decisions which lead to a very unfriendly culture a very poor performing business overall so typically what you have is individuals are afraid to voice concerns so leaders are going based on, you know, sort of this echo chamber of positive feedback. They believe they're making the right decisions. And in fact, they're making the wrong ones. So for, for me, getting honest feedback is always difficult, right? Because no one wants to tell the, the CSO, right, of, you know, a large team or a large company, like, you know, you're, you're doing the wrong thing or something's not working correctly or we made a mistake. But that's like that, that feedback is critical to me being able to course correct. I rely on that feedback because there's no way. I mean. You know, when I joined Gemini, we were 11 people. It was pretty easy for me to figure out, you know, what things were wrong. But now that we're, you know, getting close to 50 individuals in the organization from a, from a security perspective, I can't have that visibility. So I rely on people to say, hey, this is broken, or you're doing this incorrectly. And so that honesty of that feedback is incredibly important for a high-performing organization.
0: So that, building on that, Sandro, how do you get there? So David, define kind of the issue, the cost of that issue. Uh, what he needs to help avoid it. But how do you get there? How do you get someone that always will come to you when they see something that's bad that no one else is voicing and they say, okay, I'm going to break chain of command to make sure Sandro knows that this is something that's been maybe accidentally covered up or that clearly he doesn't understand that this is an issue or it's not been reported. How do you get that transparency leading to resiliency?
2: I think it's, it's leading by example. So showing that you, know, you, you can take feedback. And I, I love what Dave said. I, I love feedback. And if I show that I can accept criticism, constructive criticism, or criticism in general, that shows the team that, oh, this is actually okay. When you don't ridicule somebody for bringing something to you and bringing the, you know, the, the whole you know, scorn in public train of thought, then your teams will start coming through to you. And I think that's one of the key things. It's leading by example, remaining authentic in that environment, and create, creating a, a good work culture. Now, I talk about my personal failures so that my team can re- realize that I'm not some guy sitting at the top of the security food chain. I'm just a normal guy that needs to buy prepaid electricity or prepaid data for my phone. And, and that's it's making it relatable, making myself and my, my directs telling them to make themselves relatable to the the security analyst sitting on the floor, picking up things that nobody else is picking up. So I think that's the key thing for me.
0: Being able to to do just that, to share situations that maybe even citing back to earlier in your career, but doing it in an open forum where unsure, when you're insecure, when you're afraid of making a mistake, having that transparency and frankly, the candor and carrying that through. And, and I've even found letting larger teams know, you know, even getting up in front of them and speaking and saying, hey, I'm not sure about this, or I messed up. I need your help here, right? Asking these sort of open-ended questions to say, how would you fix this? Or what's the worst part of your day? Or what's the worst part? Of, how can I how can I help fix that? And over time, little by little, you end up with a team that will absolutely run through walls for the team because they know that you're providing this sort of air cover. Um, you've got these, you're open. Because you're open to receiving maybe a, a bad message in the moment, you're going to get stronger in the long term. I don't know if you have anything sort of to add to that. but I think humility uh, is, is, a, is, a, is a piece there. Whereas many CISOs, Many officers, I think, kind of have this aura around them that there, many people look up and maybe even idolize a little bit. And if you're the junior analyst, you may be afraid to even say hello. That's what you have to avoid.
2: No, and I think you you spot on right. It's, uh, when we could still walk the floors you know, pre-pandemic, getting to know people, just walking the floor, chatting to people about hey, how's the dog doing? How's your football team doing now? Football, not American football. There's a big difference between the two. It's understanding that, and you just mentioned it now, and I was about to say it, is the air cover. If, my, if I demonstrate that I'm giving the necessary air cover for my team, everybody knows that I'm ultimately accountable for security. My head is on the block with the board and the exco. but everybody's responsible for security, from the receptionist all the way through to the business through to my, the analyst on the, on the floor. And that's the important difference. As if you can bring everybody along that journey with you, you know, it makes the CISO, CSO's job significantly easier. And I think that's how we take things forward.
0: Dave, you said something that I thought was very interesting in an earlier chat we had. I was focusing on kind of things we get wrong in leadership in information security and kind of wondering, exploring why do we end up with what I believe is less experienced leaders in leadership positions in InfoSec. And I think it's due to the maturity or lack thereof of the profession. And we end up sort of vacuuming up maybe, maybe those that, that aren't ready to, to become a leader. And you just said something plain and simple that was sort of your approach. I'd like for you to kind of build on it. You said you don't think a definition of a leader should be different for, for security. And I think that's there's beauty in the simplicity of it, but we're not there. We don't get you know the, the, the leadership, a CISO or a CSO is not as defined and is not as the table stakes aren't there for, let's say, a CFO. And I think we evaluate ourselves differently and maybe even ignore, again, for purposes of program resiliency, it's a big risk. So you made that statement. How did you come to that sort of simple but, but elegant formulation on this is no different? So how is it no different? And, and what do we need to remind ourselves of in order for it to be the same?
1: You know, at the end of the day, we we're all focused on security, but You know, if we want to be executives and part of the executive team, then we need to be actually like having an impact on the business, right? I mean, that's what it comes down to. And how we do that from a business perspective is to make sure that we are considering helping scale other organizations, is a big one. Like, how does my organization impact the scale of other organizations? And how do I lend to that? How do I lend to supporting some of the top level goals that the organization has? So all those things are very important. The, the other thing is when you're looking at working on the executive team, you're probably not going to be talking about security. You're going to be talking about how do we you know, come up with a better pay scale for our employees? How do we come up with benefits? How do we come up? What hiring are we going to do at the executive team or within the organization? What, what organizational issues are we running into? Like very, Very few times as a member of the executive team, am I talking about security's direct impact on the organization? I think the, the value that I'm bringing as a, as a generic leader, right, is the ability to weigh in on some of these issues that we face as we grow and we scale that are things that any business would face, not just a, a security organization, for example.
0: Sandra, I want to go to you. So, so building on what Dave said, how do you get there? How do you, if you don't have background in those other areas, and let's say that you are a proficient security leader. But as a generalist, maybe you're, you're lacking a bit. Maybe you just don't have the time in some of these other areas, but you're looking to be relevant there. You're looking to give the advice that, that Dave's mentioning to be a part of truly the, the SLT, ELT of these organizations. Where might one begin? What's the mindset? What are the, the questions? What are the partnerships you should form, if any? So there's two parts, right? One is the technical
2: acumen. You obviously need technical acumen to some degree, whether it's risk, whether it's networking, whatever the case may be. But the most important thing that I've found over the years is business. Understanding business is most important. And I think I mentioned this on the show and I mentioned it again. Dr. Eric Cole said it to me in 2007. He said, if you could latch your your technical expertise to your business expertise, you've got it made as a CISO, as a CSO. And that's, I think, the key thing for me is you know, latch yourself onto a business leader Understand what their concerns are now. What is their, their profit margin? What is their revenue targets? All those things. Understanding what your business does. Right. Understanding what Gemini does, understanding what Absa does. is exceptionally important as a leader. It's all well and good that I'm gonna be protecting the organization, but what am I protecting? What are the assets that I'm protecting? What is that risk appetite of the organization? All those things plays a, a very important role as how I show up as a leader and, and how you can lead those teams forward. And I think that's one of the key things that I've learned.
0: Dave, you mentioned to me uh, we were talking about communication and specifically communicating the value of of not getting hacked. It was based on this idea that I think that and I, I believe this that we often report on kind of the wrong things and that security still today is difficult to measure. There's many ways to measure it, but I think there's few relevant ways to measure it, especially through through a business lens. And so if you're a a team leader, and you're looking to get credit, you're looking to inspire your team that you're relevant up. Your statement was, we got to work on sort of getting credit for, for, for our successes and not being judged on our failures, which is the value of not getting hacked. That's a tall order. Uh, how, how do you report on that? How do you communicate that? How do you share those ideas? How do you condition an environment, the leadership to say, hey, like we're still doing good things even though Seemingly nothing happened.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's that sort of adage, never let a good crisis go to waste, but hopefully it's not a crisis you're having, it's a near misses you're having. Um, (laughs) And so in any security organization, you're going to have events, right? They're not quite incidents, but they're events. And usually those are things that are not communicated very well to senior leadership. So one of the things I really enjoy doing is when we actually have an event and we're successful in, in preventing it from becoming a much bigger issue um that we communicate that so we talk about like what happened what went wrong it's part of the postmortem process in general but out of that you can extract uh, a narrative that is very powerful that can enforce with leadership here's an example of things that we do that you may not know about and here's how it's actually having an impact on the organization and or the business
0: people feel good about that when they see those things or, or I always did and I always loved sharing those stories those narratives and they make at minimum, they make you feel like, boy, the last seven hours I spent on this issue, it's kind of worth it. You know, it, we, we put it together. We thought about it. We dissected it. We put a story together and, and it went out. And maybe you get an, a, an attaboy or an girl on this, right? Good job. You know, that's a, a great thing. When you share that, though, and it's going up, let's say, is, is communicating the value of not getting breached, not getting hacked. How long is the message? Well, first off, how is it shared? Is this a visual depiction? Is this words? Is it one paragraph? Is it seven? What's, what's, the, what's your recommendation of the format of the
1: message, high level, and to whom does it go? Yeah, so as broad as, as broad as you can get at the go, the company also likes to see what people are working on. It depends on your culture, how uh, comfortable you are sharing some of that. We use a couple of really great stories internally about types of different uh, attempted attacks, right? Where, you know, we've prevented it from having any impact on the organization, but it demonstrates here are the types of things you should be looking for as an employee. It's part of that education. So generally I like to do two things. One is I'm, I'm a big, big believer in documentation. So writing things down helps you sort of work out the, the clear message, the problem, you know, what you did, how you resolved it. I tend to write a lot of things down because it makes things more clear. And then the follow-up with Either the executive team or individuals in more of like a story format to explain it very briefly, but it's usually very quick. People don't have the attention time span to, to listen to, you know, or to read three or four pages. It's, it's a paragraph or two. It just summarizes the issue, sort of makes it relevant to the individual, whatever level you're communicating it to, and, you know, allows them to put it in the back of their mind and get some of that additional education.
0: It's funny you mentioned not having a lot of time. I accidentally would communicate to My team, when we would send messages out, you know, you're inundated with stuff. I would say, you know, you've got eight seconds. And eight seconds came from the duration of, and I have no interest in rodeo or bull riding, but I was like, eight seconds is the duration of this. I actually think that a lot of that sport is backward, personally. But anyway, uh, I was like, you've got about eight seconds. And I just made that up. It was kind of what I would say that I, the time I had that I would give to identify, okay, what, what, why am I getting this message? What is it? And so we had this whole format that, kind of tweaked on, and there's a different way to italicize and bold. And so there was a theme to every message I would send out, almost every, and it worked. And so the joke was eight seconds. The funny thing is, is that somebody did a, a big study, like year, this is years ago, and the study came out recently, and I don't have it in front of me or I would cite it, but it was effectively, you've got seven or eight seconds. Google or somebody did this, this massive, probably cost a million dollars, you know, to come up with you know, what central Indiana Steve figured out accidentally. Uh, but it, it, you're, you're true. You, you don't have much time. Even if you're sharing something special, uh, you need to kind of get to the point. And so I think a paragraph or two is probably adequate.
2: I think depending on, on, on the audience, right? So no, board meetings quarterly, but catch up with your, your, your board members as, as often as you can, as a CISO. Your exco, that's that's monthly meetings anyway. So you, you keep that information there. And then as you go down the, the chain, it depends who you want to communicate with. And I think the biggest failure in security is not anything in, on the process side. It's got to do with communication. We're terrible at it. And I think finding a way to you know, make something relevant to someone that doesn't care about security is exceptionally important. So whether that's a funny video that's being put together, we hired a comedian to our cybersecurity program originally at least to, to do our comms. And, and we called it the hashtag cybersecurity is no joke. And then there was a comedian delivering the cybersecurity message. And then there was a joke at the end, which was great. And you got people smiling and, 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 and more engaged. And then they asked when's the next one coming out?" So you, you, you need to keep people's interest in the wonderful topic of cybersecurity you know, as, as often as you can. So that's the one part of it. The other part of it is infographics works like a charm. Who doesn't like looking at cool pictures and making it simple? Why go down the nth degree to explain how DMARC and DECOM works when all you really care about is that this is going to help you stop phishing? There's a massive difference between the two. I can go down. I can spend hours talking about these things, but that's the important thing about your messaging is you know, keep it plain and simple. It doesn't need to be overcomplicated. And exactly to my earlier point about buying prepaid data and airtime and all those things, my market the exco members, the board members have those similar challenges, so if you're going to overcomplicate things, you're going to lose their
0: interest in that eight seconds that you mentioned. Dave, you talked to us earlier about that we also do a bad job managing expectations just in security, and I think that if you don't manage them well, it will affect the team with unnatural and unnecessary pressures. You outlined Sort of setting boundaries there, and I've I've even been having conversation with folks that up the stream uh, on the show about even when you interview, it, it begins there. It, it begins when you start speaking with a company, and sort of my father used to say you have to teach people how you want to be treated, uh, kind of like a, a an addendum to the golden rule. What did you What do you mean by that? And and where do you think we mess up in general? Not setting expectations or taking on too much. Uh, explain that to us, please.
1: I think one of the largest challenges everyone would say in security is that there's not enough staff, there's not enough, you know, resources, and so managing resources becomes incredibly important. That's where setting expectations is key. So you have this sort of balance between operational work, emergencies, things come up, right, and then you have projects that you're working on. You want to be proactive, so teams that are failing quite frequently aren't proactive, right? They're just constantly responding to fires. They don't have any time to prepare and actually dig themselves out of that hole. And so if you're able to set proper expectations, you can say, here are the things that we're going to be working on. Here are the things that we're doing. You get buy-in from the business. And then let's say you have a bunch of operational tasks that pop up that are emergencies that the business needs you to do. You can come back to leadership and say, here are the things we agreed were important. Here are the things we're now being asked to do. I can only do this many things." We need to hire more people or we need to bring in a consultant. So I think it's very important to being able to make it, obviously make, make for a great experience for employees so they're not overwhelmed, but also allow, you, allow yourself to get those extra resources when you need to or push back on new requirements when they come
0: up. I think also surprises. So you have a plan. We spend all this time of, of kind of creating our yearly plan, our, our strategy, our goals, and then inevitably there's distractions. Now, those can come in the form of uh, an event, an incident, something we have to respond to that's obviously unplanned. But then there's this intrusion uh, that happens often where there's, hey, there's a surprise audit or there's a hey, can you also own this other thing? And it's, it's there's multiple levels of distraction. I find that also begins to erode the the emotion assigned to your daily work of the staff, right? If you're getting kind of pulled around and I guess what I'm saying is, or what I'm about to ask is, how do you say no to what do you say no? And then where do you draw the lines, right? I'm, I'm meeting a lot of people and they're, they're taking on more as the result of you know, the things that have happened in the last year. And many of them are eager to own more, but I would caution against that for a couple of reasons. Why might you not want to own more and, and how do you gracefully say no if you think it's the right thing to do?
1: Yeah, context switching is the worst. So we, we definitely try and avoid that the way in which we do that again is so we actually use kanban internally which is a great mechanism to prevent that from happening so it it limits how much work you can actually have in progress at any given time so the nice thing is you're able to assign bits of work to people they have some they have a, a discrete task that they can work on in addition to some of their operational abilities if we're asked to take on more we have to move some of those tasks off the board right so it's a very easy way to show to anyone who comes to me okay here you want us to do this these are the things I'm going to have to move off the board. Now, a lot of times that will be my decision. And that comes back to what's, you know, what's the value of a great leader. It's being able to make the right decisions and prioritize the right things. Uh, a lot of times it's my teams helping to prioritize a lot of those things as well. Um, but that's definitely how I, I, I sort of balance those because otherwise in the past what I've seen is people just keep taking on more and more work and you're right, it's just context switching and teams get burnt out and they get frustrated and then nothing gets done because you're working on a million different things.
2: Yeah. And I think that's a key one is that you know, depending on the individual that always says yes, They their own worst enemy. Um, and I, I normally relate it to a fire. When you're firefighting, you are concentrating on, on the main blaze, but then you get these small little fires popping up all over, the other sh- all over the show and you need to deal with that as well. Otherwise, that then turns into another big problem like you're currently dealing with. And the way we, we do it, we, we have strategic change. So things that actually impact the strategy now, whether that's you know, putting in a new vulnerability management program or talking about access management, whatever the case may be. And then there's the operational stuff. Uh, so those are the two buckets that you would typically have. But again, it comes down to that air cover that we talk about is, is seeing which one of your direct reports have the ability for, for more without burning them out, and also who needs help with learning to say no. And then the last thing I will, I'll cover off is, is risk we keep talking about risk is understanding the risk of the environment. We can do as many things as we want, but what does it actually mean to the overall risk of the organization? If a business is willing to eat more risk, I can start turning off a few things in the security side and freeing up some capacity. So that's very important that you understand that in the overall context of the business. Just to add to that,
1: I'd say one of the interesting things when you, when you talk about prioritization that often gets left out is finding tasks that increase leverage. So it's, it's, risk is obviously usually going to be number one for you, right? You need to reduce risks that are unacceptable. But, you know, if you've ever played like a tower defense game or something, there's some series of things you may build to mine gold more, more quickly, right, to increase your ability to produce more later. And so if you can make those investments early on, right, you know, for all the gamers out there, you can you basically increase your resources by gaining efficiencies through some of the tasks that will increase leverage. So we try and also prioritize based on those things that maybe automate tasks, you know, to Sandra's point, like if we can reduce, if we can accept a risk in some area or we can eliminate it by implementing a control, we can reduce the time we spend other places. A good example is something I did when I quickly came on board. It's, oh, we have a very few users who have a Microsoft Office and we just disabled macros because no one's using them, right? And it's just a whole entire attack vector that's just disappears that we don't have to worry about. or you implement keys, and now you really don't have to worry about credential harvesting, right? So things like that can be huge uh, accelerators.
0: I think one of the greatest things you can do for the junior level staff or mid-level staff is after an event or an incident, there's a, a desire to go to return to good, whatever that is, whatever, at, at a credential, at a device, at an entity level, whatever that is. But often we repeat the same issue over and over again. So we detect it, we respond, we clean up, right? It's, and, and the reason is, is because we're not also making changes to the environment that help disrupt this sort of cycle of compromise. It's the suggestion that comes at the result of hiring smart people to do an analysis. It's the macro thing that Dave just mentioned. It's the, you know, not allowing execution of PE files from temp directories. It's something that will help stop or make more difficult for the adversary. And the benefit is, is when you do those things, not only does it eliminate or lower the frequency, but the staff sees you as the leader, initiating the change into another business area or another technical area, because there's testing, right? You disable macros, now procurement can't run, you know, their spreadsheet database that should be in an app rather than a, you know, a 40 meg Excel document, right? So. That but that takes effort. You have to care. You've got to give a damn. You've got to understand the human element. So that is one of the best motivators. It's a strange one, but it's. So I'm going to open up to both of you. I mean that having that, seeing that change, not only is it good for security, but it's good for staff resiliency as well, which is the whole point of us meeting today.
2: Yeah, I think I think user experience is so. Underplayed, it's, 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 it's insane, right? I know security has always been touted or the CSO has always been touted as Dr. No. And I heard that way back when, when try to do something is, nope, you can't do it. You can't open up this port. Are you crazy? What are you trying to do? Okay, no worries. And then you'll find out they plug in you know, broadband or ADSL or go back in, in time, plug something into the network because they need to get out to the internet. And then they bridge the internet with your internal network because you couldn't allow them to do something that they needed for their job. Procurement is a perfect example. So I think understanding what your users' are, needs are is exceptionally important. Now, you know, Dave, you made a, a great point about putting in something as simple as a YubiKey or, or a multi-factor solution goes a long way in solving your, your, your two-factor risk that you would have had otherwise. And it's a great experience. You made it easy for the user. If you make things easy for people you know, to the point of automation, they won't... They, they, they won't do anything bad for the most part <laughs> i have to also caveat that if you think of those um those things you strap on for your your muscle building now bruce lee used to talk about it all the time you know 200 push-ups in five minutes or whatever the case may be that's a lazy man's way of getting to the gym but you still need to go and walk uh, and if you watch Wally and how everybody has evolved at some point where all everybody's cruising around on these floating wheelchairs That's not where we want to be. We we don't want to make it that easy for everybody. But I think the user experience component is exceptionally important in your whole security journey.
0: I want to go back to storytelling, Um, Sandro. You had kind of a trio of rather than avoiding the negative, telling positive stories, and there's sort of a path uh, that you go down, sort of a recommendation that you have for a team. I think there are three distinct stories or, or or messages. Uh, share those with us again, please.
2: Yeah, sure. So I always talk about where we were, so we know our history, where we were, where we are, and ultimately where we are going. And I right. think that gives a great journey or the st- st- start of a story of understanding now, who are we? What have we done? Exactly to the, the positive, instead of talking about the negative all the time, is talking about those positive things that we are doing. So we were in a terrible st- space five years ago. So I'm giving you a real world example. We were in a terrible space five years ago. We were dictated to on how to run our security program. So that's where we were. Where we are now, we are, I think, in a world-class maturity level. Now, as benchmarked by external providers multiple times, and the journey to get us from where we were to where we are now was a great one. And talk about that. And then you talk about, so, okay, great, we're here now. so But where are we going to create that anticipation and that excitement in the organization to say, well, no, we've been talking about zero trust for the best part of 10 years. We want to make things easier. We want to move aggressively to the cloud, etc That's essentially where we are going to go to. And I think putting it in those three buckets and then tying them together in some form of story or some form of infographic or, what it, or some form of comedian,
0: I think is a great way to dump to move things forward and make people buy into your journey. Quick addition to that, you said even with that and which I think those are marvelous. I had something similar from my past which you know, who we are, what we do and where we're going kind of the same very very similar. Very valuable to have those. You said even with that though there's still uh, some difficulty measuring or communicating how much risk you want to take on. You mentioned this before, but you had kind of an interesting tactical measure, technical, tactical measure that, that you liked. Might be putting you on. Do you remember what that was? And I don't remember a lot of things. It's not meant to be a quiz, but there was something I really liked. It, and you measured against it. it was, you, you, you spent and talked about some time of the, the, the residency of an adversary during a, an incident or during an event.
2: Oh, dwell time.
0: Good, Thanks. It's and okay. It was, it's, it's hey, we all make mistakes.
2: Dwell time is exceptionally important. That's because we don't think about it so often like we, uh, as we used to. But dwell time is exceptionally important. Uh, the time right. when attacker gets into your network to the time that, they, that you discover them. It's easy, it basically measures, is your program working? Uh, no, four or five years ago, it was in, it was in months. Uh, now, it's in, um, I think it's in weeks. And I'll never forget, I, had a, I very, got a very good friend that uh, does forensics you know, on, all around the world. And he, uh, he said the, the shortest time that he heard was that they picked the, the adversary up in uh, three minutes, four minutes. The worst he's heard is that they've been in the network for six years. And I, I said, I said, no, that's impossible. Really? He said, six years, which means that the adversaries know the environment better than every CIO that's come through, every network architect that's come through. Yeah, they can pretty much design everything. And I think that's why dwell time is exceptionally important so that you can also show your teams that things are working. Now, are you doing things that are moving your program forward or
0: moving that bus forward? or are you just standing still? Yeah, I will, speaking of knowing the network, the adversary actually will do a pretty good job of figuring out your network, probably better, might even put together their own documentation. They'll certainly take time to read yours and make use of it for sure. Dave's smiling because he knows this probably better than anybody. And Dave loves documentation, so. We used to get our documentation from the attackers. That was always the the best way (laughs) to understand the network. Yeah, yeah, can we pay for a network diagram, please? Kind of in the same vein, uh, Dave, you kind of approach the first question is just how am I successful or uh, how successful am I?" was was kind of your your step zero on that. What do, how do you break that down? How do you measure your success or or, or not? Are there other methods or processes there?:
1: There's sort of a higher level goal, which is is a little bit more anomalous that's related to cryptocurrency. And then there's some that are related to to more of the business. So when you think about you know a retail business like ours, very focused on, on reducing the amount of fraud or scams, very uh, focused on making it easier for individuals to be more secure, providing things like so we're the only exchange that's provide support for um, WebAuthn, for example, on both mobile and web. So you can actually have a non-fishable token, which is pretty awesome. Uh, allow lists, things like that, that you don't even find for most banks for like ACH transfers, for example. Right. So we're trying to go above and beyond there. And then providing a frictionless uh, sort of experience, like how quickly and securely can we get people onboarded, and um, you know things things of that nature. I will say, sort of the overarching measurement we have is is bringing trust to the community. So if you think about crypto, it's sort of this nascent industry that has had issues in the past with trust, and so a lot of what we do is aimed at how can we instill more trust in the industry. And it's it's you know very hard to do, right? It's a it's a Crypto is very new. There's not a lot of friction, which is why people love it, as compared to traditional financial organizations and the financial systems. And so we're, you know, we're coming up with new ways to protect I- individuals in a less in a in a financial experience with less friction, right? So that increased speed makes it much harder to introduce controls, right? Because we need to make things that are allow right. that speed to continue, but then also protect the users.
0: You noted though that some of your favorite so that, that's sort of a mindset, but some of your favorite methods, just testing in general. So evaluation, you mentioned you know, red team, purple team, utilizing that as a sample set for success. How does someone get that right? So maybe not exactly your playbook, but in, in general, let me put a, a little more on this. I know a lot of organizations that do pen testing or have pen testing done in their environment, uh, but it's absolute garbage, meaning they have it done and it's completely worthless. Uh, You're talking about doing, I've seen millions of dollars wasted on shitty pen tests. And it's because it doesn't represent really what the adversary is likely to do. So Dave is going to put together tests or recommend someone to put together this. Again, am I successful? How can I communicate that? Am I leading to resiliency? What's the, the thrust there?
1: Totally. We do pen tests. I love them. The red teaming stuff is, is very interesting and cool. And we love them as well as a great metric to test how well you're doing, right? You can test that dwell time very easily, right? Are we detecting individuals when they breach a laptop or a system very quickly or not? I think the key there is that most organizations are not at the maturity to take advantage of that yet. And so I always caution against doing something like that. If you can go through a, a tabletop exercise. And identify like we probably wouldn't catch that or we probably wouldn't catch that you should do those things first and then you can start running red and purple teams on a more consistent basis so that that's the way i like to sort of approach the these things there's a, a level of maturity you need to build up to first and then they're extremely valuable you, you, know, you have organizations like microsoft or google who are doing these things on an ongoing basis and they can measure sort of the results of that over time and you can you can see which way you're trending based on the uh, different controls that you implement. So to me, that's, that's sort of the highest order of measurement is actually exposing yourself to realistic attack scenarios.
0: I'm glad you ended saying that, not just because there's many organizations that will, allow, that will allow you to pay for a test that is not representative of what is likely to happen during an attack.
1: Right. I mean, like we know the organizations out there you'd want to hire. They're, they're going to be very smart organizations and individuals that will tailor the experience to your business specifically and make it as realistic as possible so you know it's it you know it's not the vuln scans or you know type of pen test that you see a lot of times for compliance reasons
2: right right (laughs) i'm chuckling because that's spot on it's um you need a realistic test of your environment with my environment's completely different to dave's environment we may have similar vulnerabilities that pops up i may have Insiders focused on specific things to try and cash out of the organization or, or customer data out, et cetera, versus what you know, Dave's organization is. So I think it's important that when you're going through that, that sense check of organizations out there, the targeted attack simulation, uh, essentially, that's what you're looking for is you know, how, how can somebody get in your environment and create a user that essentially is going to get paid at the end of the month uh, through payroll. Those are the kind of things that you want to, you want to do not just because I, I went to a conference much like this many, many years ago, walk the floor. And every time you're walking the floor, by the time you from one end of the hall to the other end of the hall, you've got a stack of business cards of, hey, you know, all these cool things that you can implement to solve your problem. There is no silver bullet to security. It's the holistic approach for everything that will help you move the dial forward. And that's very, very important to understand because many times I'm sure Dave, just like you, Steve, uh, you've been pinged you know, numerous times buy a vendor that says, buy my product. If you had my product, that would never have happened. It's, you, know, you have no idea what just happened.
0: So yeah, That's the absolute worst thing to hear. If you're in the middle of working on a problem like a breach or a major incident, that is the worst. I'm putting a book together of all the emails and LinkedIn messages that I receive
2: like that. I think we can all contribute to it. Uh, it will make some fun reading.
0: One of the things on resiliency that I think is, and we could, I've got a pages more of notes from both of you. We won't have a chance to get to anywhere near all of it, but one of the things I think is important, and Sandra, you had a great story on this, is just, I'm curious, hiring, can you hire for resiliency? And, and are there attributes? Obviously, you need to care about the individual, you need to be a leader, you need to have all these other things we've talked about. But if you could hire for resiliency, can you, and, and if you can, is there, is there something in the process to look for? Sandra, I want to go back to you.
2: Yeah. So when we do a hire for our academy or get the students to come through, we ask them a simple question because we are testing for a specific ability, their innate ability to protect. Uh, and we ask them a simple question. So I'm meeting Steve and Dave. I'm at a backpacker's lodge somewhere in the world. We're having a barbecue. And I'm meeting the two of you. And then we go back to our the dormitory and a fire breaks out. And the question is very simple. What do you do? And the answers you get is it varies from one end to the other. Now, one person says, no, grab my stuff and run out of the building as quickly as possible. And then you get others that says, no, no, wake everybody up and get as many people out of the building as possible. And then the other one will say, oh, as I'm grabbing all my stuff, I'm going to look specifically for Steve and Dave uh, because I had a great relationship. We had a great couple of beers over the barbecue, and I'm trying to get them out as well as part of my process of leaving. So the, the responses that you get to that is very important because I don't want somebody that's just going to gun for the door, for the exit as quickly as possible because they're not going to care. So if things go wrong, then yeah, that's not the people that you are gonna rely on. So I think those are the kind of things that we use in our, in, our, in our process when we're going through the academy hiring to see are these the individuals that we want in our organization and are these the type of individ, individuals that we want to develop into cybersecurity experts into white hats, uh, and it's very interesting when you get some of the results. But yeah, that's some of the stuff that we do.
0: David, you I saw you smile. Uh, any any thoughts there? Any other tips or perspectives you look for in terms of hiring, or or maybe even when you interview for resiliency?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I like the like the story approach, right? It's something that's unrelated to maybe like technical skill set. I think much of my like philosophy on hiring was developed when I was at Mandiant we we're hiring. Uh, we weren't hiring experts in forensics because they didn't exist, right? There was no expert in enterprise incident response. And so really we focused on finding individuals that had, were smart, right? They had the intellect to pick up new concepts very quickly. They were passionate about the subject matter area, right? And they, were good, they sort of aligned with the culture that had been defined. And so to me, that's generally what I'm looking for, Obviously, when we're hiring more experienced individuals, there's some technical experience, right? Some technical expertise that we're looking for. But overall, we're really looking for smart, curious, passionate people that sort of fit within our culture. And, and you know, if they don't have the exact technical requirements that we we need, they'll learn. Um, I, I'm not too concerned about it. So that that's generally the approach I've taken.
0: Perfect gentlemen, I thank you so much for your time today. We could go on for hours, but uh, we all have other things uh, to do as well. And this has been, I I sincerely appreciate the time you've made for us, all of what you've shared. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.